Hi, I'm Michael Weber, Artistic Director of Chicago's Porchlight Music Theater. In this edition of the Sondheim at 90 Roundtable, our guest is Rick Pender, author of the forthcoming Encyclopedia of Stephen Sondheim, to be released April 15th, 2021. Rick was the editor of the Sondheim Review and later publisher of Everything Sondheim. An astute and award-winning critic and an articulate zealot for all things Sondheim, he's regularly broadcast interviews for WVXU, Cincinnati's National Public Radio affiliate, and has interviewed Stephen Sondheim on stage and in the studio several times. Welcome, Rick, to the roundtable. Thank you so much, Michael. It's great so to be here. So happy to have you here. This is such an exciting event, this book coming out, and I see that uh, you've been getting incredible reviews from, let's say, Bernadette Peters, James Lapine, John Weidman, Ted Chapin, Don, John Doyle, and so many people who have worked incredibly close with Sondheim have gotten the opportunity to see this amazing book. And uh, they're just uh, blown away by your accomplishment here. It's amazing. I'm truly flattered and grateful for the, the praise that they've given. I, I hope that it uh, entices more folks to get a hold of the book. I think it will. Um, I like to start for all of us at the very beginning. Uh, and in this particular case, it's, it's about our first encounter with Stephen Sondheim. I think myself, for a lot of people, my first encounter with Sondheim's work was probably West Side Story and Gypsy, but I didn't appreciate or recognize Stephen Sondheim until Sunday in the Park came into my life when I was in high school uh, uh, on an album. How was that for you? What was the first Sondheim shows that you were exposed to? And then when did you suddenly go, who's Stephen Sondheim? Yeah, well, the very first uh, point at which I recognized that uh, there was some genius at work was when I was, uh, I believe I was 13, I got a copy of the uh, original cast recording from the movie of West Side Story. And I thought, these songs, these words, they're just amazing. But I didn't connect that it was Stephen Sondheim. I mean, who really knew who Stephen Sondheim was uh, at that point in time? So I, I, you know, I enjoyed that one. I enjoyed Gypsy when I got to see that one. But uh, for me, and I'm a little older than you, uh, I, the, the shows that started coming out in the 70s with Company and with Follies and those, I, uh, I was living in Ohio, I still live in Ohio, uh, so I wasn't able to get to New York to see them, but lots of uh, companies in Ohio began to pick those up. And I saw a relatively early production of Company at uh, Baldwin Wallace College. Uh, it's a pretty good training program for uh, musical theater talent. Um, I saw, I did not get to see a production of Follies. I just got to listen to the music and heard about that. Um, but then a production of a little night music happened at a small, I, I don't want to call it a community theater. It was more professional than that, near Canton, Ohio. And I went and saw that show and I thought, oh my gosh, this guy is amazing. You know, these shows are so different from one another. And from that point forward, I was really kind of hooked on listening more and more. But the point where I really began to dig in was in, uh, let's see, it would have been about 1989 or so, uh, my 40th birthday. To commemorate my 40th birthday, I had to have some hernia surgery and I was laid up at home for quite a while. So I went to the library before that and stocked up on a bunch of CDs. And one of them was that three disc set of a collector's Sondheim. Right. And I listened to that repeatedly. And that was when I really began to say, this man is totally, totally amazing. The things that he's created musically and lyrically, uh, you know, there's no one else like him. And right. that's, that was really when I latched on to that. Right. Well, you're certainly not alone in uh, just being in awe of this artist and his creations. You know, I think when we talk about the, the breadth of American music theater and certainly, you know, names that come to mind with people who've made enormous impacts, the Gershwins and Irving Berlin and Cole Porter, Julie Stein, of course, Bernstein, how 
Can you put into words what differentiates Sondheim? Why do all of these other composers and his own collaborators worship this man and revere him? What is it about him that makes that anybody who gets a call to be in one of his original productions, it's an absolute yes? Well, I, I think that some of it is simply, if I can use that word, admiration, since he is both a composer and a lyricist. That's, that's a rare breed to find anyone who can do that, uh, that sort of thing. So that's part of it. But it goes so much more beyond that. And it is really his ability to write songs, write music, write words that, that are the natural outgrowth of the story and the characters that are being created. And that, to me, is what sets all of his shows apart, no matter how radically different they are. And they are different musically, uh, sonically, in, in so many ways. Uh, but, but it is the fact that he writes scenes as if he was an actor in them, in fact, in many ways. And I think from, from what I've learned about his, his style of composition is that he really does sort of begin to think through what it's gonna look like on stage. He often lets his book writer get a little bit ahead of him. So he's got material to draw from. And I think that's that's somewhat unusual to have that kind of relationship. He does, however, you know, he he balks somewhat at his shows being called just Sondheim musicals because he said without his book writers, you know, he he, he would be lost. Right. And so, you know, I think that's an important thing. He is such a tremendous collaborator. You listen to people who've worked with him, uh, both actors and uh, directors and designers and all those sort of people. They just speak constantly about his humanity, his insight, his creativity. And I think that those are all factors that go into answering the question. Mm -hmm. It is such a delightful surprise. And it's so consistent, that element of his, and I wouldn't even say generosity. He's not, def he's not being, uh, oh, well, I'm going to you know sprinkle a little crumbs. He genuinely always seems to be um, very much in tandem with 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 his co-writers in a way, and his directors certainly when it when it comes to Lapine and Prince, um, where he's giving and taking and and sharing the reins as 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 the productions, at least the original productions, uh, began to take shape. And and even even beyond, often when there have been at least Broadway revivals, he's been quick to be engaged in those. Mm -hmm. And even yet today, at the ripe old age of almost 91, he's working with uh, Steven Spielberg on West Side Story, on the right. movie West Side Story. Right. So he loves to continue to be involved. And he has been gracious in so many ways with people who have ideas that he thinks are intriguing to reconceive his shows. This mm -hmm. recent production that Marianne Elliott did of Company with the gender switched mm -hmm. central character. Um, I think that he was quite pleased with that. And mm -hmm. uh, sadly, we haven't gotten to see it on this side of the Atlantic yet, but right. I have to believe that it's going to happen once uh, Broadway gets its feet on the ground. I'd like to propose a toast. I've always wanted to do it. I love the music so much. I wanted very much to update it to now. I wanted to work with Marianne and she has a vision of it. I admire Marianne so much. The Olivier goes to... Company. Company. Matty Lapone for Company. I think actors are only as good as their directors. And I have been extremely fortunate to work with Marianne Elliott. So hard to be married. I've done it three or four times. We wanted it to feel contemporary and fun. Because she's a woman, everybody has an opinion about what she should do. Then you leave a person dangling, sadly. Outside your door, which it only makes a person gladly want you even more. Here's to the girls who stay smart, aren't they a guess? Let's hear it for the ladies who lunch. Everybody, rise! 
it's a really well-loved piece. And even though it's a universal story, it's very specifically written for Manhattan. It's something that seems to keep him young and relevant. And I'm reminded by his concern when he said, when I turn 50, I don't know of many artists who've contributed anything after they were 50 years old to writing, you know, new work. But uh, he still seems to continue to remain relevant. Well, and, and that was uh, just, he was sort of down in the dumps after Merrily We Roll Along for, for some legitimate reasons. But, but then his collaboration with Lapine was like it, it, it when he went on to a whole new phase of his career. Mm -hmm. And uh, he is right, I think, in saying that a lot of composers, uh, not that they were one shot wonders, but they were, you know, they didn't have tremendous productivity as they got older. But he has, uh, and in fact, I think though also his work has become even more thoughtful, mm -hmm. uh, more sensitive in some ways um, in this, the latter part of his life beyond 50 particularly working with Lapine, it seems to have brought out a very different aspect of his uh, creativity. Yes, you you do see for, for a composer, and it's the gift of having him around. I, I, I can't, I'm trying to think of somebody who, who wrote as long as he did, maybe Julie Stein, uh, you know, wrote for as many years and, and he evolved and there were different, uh, you know, chapters to his writing life that are so apparent from what he was in his early days uh, mm -hmm. versus where he eventually arrived at by the time he was creating things like Bounce, yeah. um, which of course was something that had went right back to the beginning as well, because he started yes. writing it in the 50s. Right. Let's talk a little bit about the book, about, you know, and then you're writing an encyclopedia. <laughs> people, people are not inclined to go, I want to go to an, have an encyclopedia, but this is something that requires an encyclopedia. When did this begin? When did, how long has the writing been going on? Um, it was late in uh, 2017 when I was contacted by uh, an editor at Roman and Littlefield, the publisher. Um, they had, in fact, reached out to uh, Mark Horowitz at the Library of Congress, who had previously published a book with them about Sondheim, to see if he was interested. Mark is a, a music theater librarian at the Library of Congress and a wonderful resource. It was very helpful to me with the magazine. They had asked him if he would consider doing something like this. And he, uh, he has bit off another <laughs> immense project. He is editing the correspondence of Oscar Hammerstein. And uh, that's going to be an interesting project too. But he said he really could not take on the, the, the encyclopedia. But he suggested that I would be an appropriate person. I had to think a little bit about it because my first reaction was, well, I had lots of writers who worked with me on the magazine and I'll be able to recruit them to help me. Well, they didn't have any budget for me to pay a whole lot of other people to do things. So they said, you know, well, you can break it up however you want, but we, we sort of think that you're going to need to do most of the writing for this. And uh, I drew a deep breath and said, okay, I'll give it a try. I will say, going back to Mark one more time, he had written a series of fabulous pieces for the magazine that were called A Biography of a Song. And he would take one Sondheim song and delve into every aspect of it, the, the music theory behind the composition. The, 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 the choice of words for things, how it fit into the original production and so on. And these pieces in the magazine were five or 6,000 words, immense long pieces. Of, you know, that's, the, that's sort of on the New Yorker length when you get, come down to articles like that. He did 10 of those about some of Sondheim's best known works. And I approached him and said, Mark, I'd like to use these in the encyclopedia. I will give you full credit but uh, I will need to cut them down. I think I, I can't make entries that are that long. And he was in total agreement with that. He's just a prince of a human being. Mm -hmm. And he uh, was more than happy to let me do it. So there are these 10 pieces in there that uh, are about, you know, of course, uh, uh, Send in the Clowns is one of them. Please Hello from, uh, from Pacific Overtures and, uh, and so on. Anyway, they're, they're, they are in there. Um, and I really tried to distill some of the essential pieces 
that would be of interest to someone who is leafing through an encyclopedia. They probably don't need to go into all of the massive detail that Mark did, but they are now pieces that are 1,500 to 2,000 words. So they're still pretty, pretty comprehensive. Wow. So, but he was the only other help that I had mm-hmm. in writing. The, the contract that Roman and Littlefield gave to me was for 300,000 words, which is a, a staggering. That's about four, four novels. If you, a typical <laughs> novel is, you know, mm-hmm. 65,000, 70,000 right. words. So that was a lot of writing. So I began writing very early in 2018. I made a trip to Washington, D.C. to meet with Mark at the Library of Congress. And he loaned me some wonderful resource material, not not archival material, but things that he called scrapbooks. They were ring binders where he had, you know, uh, printed out copies of interviews and articles and reviews and things like that and had them organized show by show. And he loaned those to me. In fact, I drove back to Ohio with three cartons of these ring binders in front of my car and uh, had them on hand for the better part of uh, about 18 months, which is about the length of time it took me to write. So I was working on the writing from January of 18 until early in the fall of 19. I turned the manuscript in um, in October and uh, there was some dithering around editors for it, which took a while and we had to get permissions on the lyrics and photography that we wanted to use. The book doesn't have a lot of photography, but there is illustrative black and white photography. And it's really not intended to be a uh, coffee table book. It's more of a book to keep on your bookshelf to look something up. I, I guarantee, as several of the people who commented about the book said, you will start reading it for one thing, and pretty soon you'll have read four other things because mm-hmm. they're all there. Uh, there are 131 entries in it altogether. But the book got delayed. It was supposed to come out April of 20. And of course, we had this little interruption in everyone's lives with COVID-19. And Roman and Littlefield laid off a a bevy of editors. And it all just sat there and didn't really get back into production again until late in the summer of uh, of 20. And I just heard the other day that it's on the press now. So by the 15th of April, it should be ready. Well, that's great. One of the other uh, names I see in your uh, your acknowledgments in the book is thanking Stephen Sondheim for uh, your numerous queries and 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 uh, questions that you had for him. Uh, talk a little bit about that relationship uh, with him in terms of of documenting this and uh, his recollections. Well, let me just first say the foundation for that was the, the dozen or so years that I spent editing the Sondheim Review. And while he was not part of its production or anything like that, he didn't get it in the mail and he read it carefully and often let me know if there was something that wasn't quite right or if there was something that pleased him. It was not not all just, oh, what the hell were you thinking? Uh, but uh, so we had some communication back and forth then. I started that in 2004. Magazine had been around for about 10 years already. Uh, the previous editor had departed, and I was—I had been an associate editor, and uh, was asked to step into that role. And so early on, uh, within the first year, Steve got asked to do a program in New York City for an organization called the Young Presidents Organization. These were for business leaders who were, I think, under forty. And somehow, Steve had been acquired to appear at an event through through some other event. And uh, they, they, someone thought he would give a speech. He's not much for giving speeches, but he's quite happy to sit on stage and have a conversation. So he said, get in touch with Rick Bender. He's editing this magazine now. Um, and we'd had some back and forth already that seemed pretty positive to him. So I flew off to New York City and in a dinner club in, uh, in the theater district we had about an audience of about 100 people uh, who sat there and watched me and Steve talk about stuff. It was the first time I'd ever met him in person. And of course, you know, who isn't in awe of Steve Sondheim when you, when you meet him? But uh, he was very generous. We were at a, uh, a cocktail reception beforehand, and people kept trying to butt into our conversation, of course, because he was this famous man. And he finally asked for a 
stiff drink and a, a quiet corner where we could sit and talk. For a few minutes. <laughs> that was a wonderful event yeah. because we, in addition to our conversations, um, we had musical interludes performed by Raulis Farza mm -hmm. uh, and accompanied by Mary Mitchell Campbell, who did uh, the accompaniments for uh, John Doyle's actor uh, actor musician productions. Mm -hmm. And it was right at this time that uh, Raul was auditioning to be in that production company, which mm -hmm. originated here in Cincinnati, I'm happy to say. It was, I felt very lucky to have him in our midst for a while and get to talk to him. Um, I was asked to do a night, I think it was, um, what's that place next to the Edison? The, is there a club there? What's that called? The Supper Club. The Supper Club, okay. So we were going to do a night where somebody was going to interview him from the, Rick Pinder, I think from the Sondheim Review? You don't remember? Anyway, uh, I didn't know Mary Mitchell, but uh, Steve wanted me to do uh, a song of my choice, and, uh, and then he chose uh, two others, and then we would do, <laughs> and he would talk about them, and this guy would interview him, Rick would interview him. And uh, it was one of those nights, I should have sung Sending the Clowns, but I chose, uh, because nobody cared about what we sang, but they wanted to hear Steve talk, and Mary Mitchell was my, my pianist. Somebody drowned me with love. medley performed by Marin Maisie and Jason Danielli. They had a Sondheim medley on one of their recordings with about five numbers in it. And they came on stage and did that. It was a wonderful, wonderful evening. So after that, I could send Steve an email. And usually within 24 hours, if he was in New York or Connecticut or London, I'd get something back from him. But not, not long stuff. And, and sometimes it was, you know, what are you thinking? You know, I'm not going to, you know, talk about that. But, mm -hmm. but he was always quick to respond. Yes. So I would say we had a, a good relationship. He did not review much of the material in the encyclopedia. However, I thought it, it was essential that he read through the biography entry that I've, that I've created uh, to be sure that everything is accurate in that. And he did and elaborated on a few things, but didn't really tinker with it very much. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, we have that wonderful biography by my Mara Sechrist mm -hmm. of Sondheim, at least through 1998. I mean, he's had quite a bit of life beyond that, but that's a wonderful resource and was one of the things that I used a lot in my writing uh, of the various entries in the book. Right, right. Yeah, I, I have found that when I have reached out to him. He has been incredibly, as you say, quick and generous in his response uh, and very detailed uh, in terms of not, not just being you know, general. Now the book is 636 pages. Uh, do I understand? That's, it is. So it's, it's, it's completely thorough. What do you think, um, because you are obviously a lover of this work as well as a documentarian of the details. Do you, was it a challenge for you to keep any of your particular bias out of the book or, do, or, or is that part of it that we can sense a little bit of you and your voice in the book? I think that I would say that I, I tried to keep that to a minimum because I don't think that's the purpose of an encyclopedia. However, uh, with all of the entries about the shows, all 18 of the shows, I do uh, try to give a pretty good summary with some remarks of critical reaction to the original production. And uh, of course, with some shows that uh, you know, didn't do well or had whatever, uh, something like anyone could whistle that uh, you know, was just kind of a weird show, uh, you, know, you have to let some of that enter in. You can't just treat it as if it were you know, the equal Sunday in the park with George. Uh, so, you know, there is some of that, but I would say that by and large, um, I tried to be pretty straight ahead, descriptive of things. And if I wanted to bring opinion in, it tended to be the opinions of others. Now, of course, 
I'm selecting which of those opinions mm -hmm. are there. So at least in a secondary way, I guess there's some, but I tried to, to have some, you know, from, from varying perspectives. Right. So let's go back a little bit to, to Sondheim and maybe just his craftsmanship. So as we're saying, you know, what differentiates him, um, what often is the first thing I think that people notice about Sondheim is the rhymes, is the, the lyrics. And even though that was, he was never willing to settle for just being a lyricist. In fact, it sounds, my, what I gather is that maybe is his least favorite part of it. It is the part that we all just relish and adore. What is the hardest, it's the hardest work for him that he says. Several times he's been asked to write music for, for movie scores. And he said, it's such a pleasure because I don't have to write the lyrics. And uh, as much as he, I think, ultimately revels in writing lyrics when he has a story to work with and that sort of thing, I think that it is an easier task for him uh, to, to do only, only music. But the fact that he's published two volumes about his lyric writing, I think, is a way of uh, underscoring the importance that he sees and his willingness to, to reveal much of his processes and thoughts about how you put words together, the, the rhyming, of course, being, being an immense part of that. Mm -hmm. I think it's a, a part of um, Sondheim's familiarity with audiences that maybe has receded a bit, but there, there was definitely an, an accusation, and he even brings it up in, in things like Merrily We Roll Along, that his music wasn't hummable. Um, what do you say to somebody who says, I just don't, I don't understand this music. I can't, tote, it doesn't make my toes tap. I, I generally ask someone who says that um, if, they, if they've seen a show more than once. I think that a lot of times, sometimes music is complex and, and the words come at you, you know, so fast sometimes, they can be hard to grasp, but they become hummable because if you've seen a show several times, you become more familiar with the lyrics, the story. And I mean, I, I can't think of a Sondheim show that doesn't have a song in it that I could, well, you wouldn't want to hear me sing it, but uh, uh, that, you know, that, that doesn't have a memorable melody that somebody could hum. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're right, he does, he pokes fun at it, even pokes fun at it in the song, and merrily we roll along. That's great, that's well, the other stuff as well. It isn't every day I hear a score this strong But fellas, if I may, there's only one thing wrong There's not a tune you can hum There's not a tune you go bum 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 dee dum You need a tune to go bum 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 dee dum Give me some melody Why can't you throw them a crumb? What's wrong with letting them tap their toes a bit? I'll let you know when Stravinsky has a hit Give me some melody Oh, sure I know it's not that kind of show, but can't you have a score that's sort of in between? But play a little more, I'll show you what I mean. Who wants to live in New York? I always hated the dirt, the heat, the noise, but ever since I met you, I... Listen, boys, maybe it's me, but that's just not a hum a mum a mum a mum a melody. Write more, work hard, leave your name with the girl, less avant-garde, leave your name with the girl, just write a plain old melody. Dee, 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 dee. That was a, really a poke at uh, George Abbott, who didn't think that some of the material was, in fact, the word hummable was what he used mm -hmm. and wanted uh, something different. But uh, I just think that, uh, I mean, sometimes says, you know, one, one of the songs that he often refers to in that is uh, Weekend in the Country, uh, the end of the second act of A Little Night Music. And he said, well, of course, everyone knows the melody for that because it's got like 17 verses and it just goes over and over and over again. And so, of course, people at intermission are going to be out in the lobby humming and whistling that. Oh, 
some of the numbers from Passion do not really lend themselves to uh, uh, that sort of melodic approach. But uh, by and large, there's plenty of material that is there that is memorable and uh, can create earworms. Yeah. I think it might be a phenomenon with him that it, it is in those original productions that once you've seen it once, you do need to go back. And it's really perhaps more through, through his reviews through things like putting it together or side by side by Sondheim, that people really got to uh, experience the songs as easygoing down, you know, uh, entertainments, as opposed to in the confines of what is usually a fairly nuanced, emotional and complex story. But when you take them out, they do have the ability to have a life. I would, I would add to that, that collectors Sondheim Three disc set that really set me down this path mm -hmm. because, <clears throat> excuse me, the uh, the lyrics in that uh, you know they, they really come to the forefront. I mean the um, the the invocation, the, the piece that he mm -hmm. originally uh, you know written that, that ended up being used in, in one of the reviews is a is a wonderfully funny piece about theater. You know, gods of the theater smile on us. That and and I think that that listening to that whole recording, it had things on it. I had never uh, really familiarized myself, in fact, with some of the music from Anyone Can Whistle. And mm -hmm. as odd as that show is, it has some fantastic music in it. Oh, yeah. And that really comes through in a recording like that. So it is, you know, I mean, every one of his shows had memorable original cast recordings. There's some grousing about uh, follies because right. it got truncated rather savagely. To fit onto a, a CD, uh, but uh, but most of the shows, I mean, frankly, anyone can whistle and merely roll along. Probably would have been forgotten altogether if it weren't for the original cast recordings. They had such short runs, but record producers who said we've got to record these things, and they did, and they they lived and lived to see light another day. Mm -hmm. And of course, we're we're so lucky. Uh, our friend John Yap has put together that the new complete cast recording of, of Anyone Can Whistle, which is, I mean, again, so extraordinary. And another person like yourself who's been so dedicated to documenting and, and keeping these shows out there and reminding us, even though they may not be the most popularly produced, but that whenever you revisit them, there's always so many riches to be discovered when you dig into something like Do I Hear a Waltz or Anyone Can Whistle or, or some of the rarely done shows as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it would seem in terms of talking just about, you know, the popular songs, I, I'm guessing, you know, Send in the Clowns was probably was... Are, was that the most commercially popular of his individual I, songs? I, I think that that would certainly be the case. It was the one that was most commercially recorded, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with uh, Judy Collins and Frank Sinatra. And it's the one that won a Grammy and that sort of thing. So it's certainly the one that people are most familiar with, whether they completely understand it or not. In fact, if you don't know it in the context of the show, you're not quite sure what what are, what, what are all these clowns? What's this about? <laughs> <laughs> So that, uh, but but that is certainly, and it's a, it is a simple, dare I say, hummable melody mm -hmm. that uh, you know that really sticks with people. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, you know, he wrote that number for Glynis Johns, who was 
not a spectacular singer. He always said that she has a sort of a silvery, breathy voice, which he found very attractive. Mm -hmm. And so he wrote that. With, there's a lot of uh, a lot of breath in that, mm -hmm. and uh, it really uh, it also has short phrases because she didn't have a lot of uh, breath support for being able to sing it. And so it's something that I think it's a relatively easy number to sing. Maybe that's part of why it has uh, become popular. Right. But but it's it is certainly the, the, the most well known. Some of the other numbers, like things from Follies, like I'm Still Here and Broadway Baby, I and mean, those are titles that they, they get used, those songs get used certainly in reviews and in uh, just compilations of great Broadway tunes and that sort of thing. So there's there's more that are familiar, but I would still say that, that Send in the Clowns is probably the one, you know, somebody who's only vaguely familiar with Sondheim is likely to know that that's a song by him. Isn't it rich? Isn't it queer? Losing my timing this late in my career. And where are the clowns? There ought to be clowns. Well, maybe next year. So for somebody like yourself who has spent so many years um, digging into not only the, the details of the making of the shows and the evolution of the shows themselves, but also the, the evolving biography of the man, um, what is your opinion in terms of his personal presence in his songs? Of Is he expressing does he draw on himself he he tends to downplay that do you agree with him or do you find that maybe he's not giving that who would i be to disagree with Stephen? <laughs> i i think though that surely some of his his feelings and thoughts and philosophies are reflected in those things but he is not writing those songs as some sort of autobiographical confession about his own artistic philosophy and that sort of thing. I mean, people want to, you know, read a lot of him into George Surratt and Sunday in the Park with George. Um, he, Sondheim himself says the only song uh, that he's written that uh, is truly uh, autobiographical is Opening Doors from Merrily We Roll Along, in which he talks about young musical theater artists trying to sell their wares to producers on Broadway. And uh, that harkens back to his uh, early career when he and Hal Prince and uh, Mary Rogers were sort of involved in that kind of game. And so there is some reflection of that. And that's in fact where that the, the line about the hummable number comes, comes from. Mm -hmm. So, you know, th there certainly is some of that. And I, I can't imagine that he would warm as much to some of the material that he's written, if he didn't have some uh, personal engagement in the in the issues being talked about, but but first and foremost, he's writing those songs for the characters who are performing them in the show, not not because he's trying to um, put forward some of his own philosophy. Yeah, I find it so interesting to hear him speak in retrospect about his music. Um, I remember what, uh, when we were having our conversation in, in the roundtable about Saturday night and and the stories of him revisiting that, you know, look looking at a show that he wrote as a very young man and as a very young writer and, and having to kind of wrestle with what he might want to change versus going, don't, don't, that that's not, we're not here to fix it. We're here to presented for what it is. And of course there are stories, you know, that keep popping up with the, the soon to be released uh, Steven Spielberg production of West Side Story. He again refers to some of his uh, discomfort with some of his efforts on West Side Story. Uh, the, his he, is, he has been known to say, you don't edit your baby pictures. <laughs> I think that, that that sums it up pretty clearly. Uh, it is interesting. I had a conversation the other day 
with someone who was waxing ecstatic over I Feel Pretty from West Side Story. And of course, Sondheim says that that number makes him blush whenever he hears it. And he uh, he wrote it because it was uh, sort of in the vein that, that Bernstein uh, wanted a uh, very poetic and kind of highly emotional and that sort of thing. But I mean, Sondheim's quick to say, does that really sound like a young girl who just got off the boat from Puerto Rico talking about being you know, fizzy and funny and fine and all of that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, but I think you're right. He doesn't, he's not going to go back and revise those kinds of things now. They mm -hmm. are sort of set in, set in amber and uh, they need to be done the way they were originally intended. <laughs> that um you know at that particular moment in his life when he was bursting onto the scene but but still needing to collaborate uh, because he was not yet you know Stephen Sondheim that we know plus he was working with amazing writers mm -hmm. but I think of with Gypsy with him wanting to write that score and with Merman saying I don't I don't not ready to go with this guy on all of it um do you sense any compromise within those lyrics specifically in Gypsy of of do you of somebody who maybe was discontented in any way by not, having not, not in the least mm -hmm. I, I will tell you that in my study of that particular production for one thing it was it was written very quickly it only took them about three months to put that show together and uh it was in part because although he was not happy at first to be asked to write lyrics again, um, Oscar Hammerstein had said to him, you know, here's a chance to write for a star and you'll have to write some, you know, songs that will fit her. And that will be something that you will learn and will be valuable to you throughout your career. So that was a, a feature of it. Julie Stein was a composer who, who he still says was just bursting with melodies. And if he wrote something that people said, oh, that doesn't work, he wouldn't try to noodle with it either, write another one. And Sondheim was sort of dazzled by that. It was not the way that he composed, certainly, but he was impressed with that. And then he was working with Arthur Lawrence and they had you know, been together on several shows. So apparently that threesome had a ball working together. So, and, and there are a couple of, uh, numbers from that, particularly the Rose's Turn number, that uh, he really uh, sat down uh, with, uh, you know, with other people and decided how to put that song together, you know, with Stein's music and so on. And, and it was a real collaborative venture uh, that, uh, you know, created, and the lyrics for that, I mean, there's certainly no compromise there. Mm -hmm. um, that, that is as good as any of the um, deep into the thoughts of a character that we find in, in some of his later shows. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I think that he doesn't have any regrets about, about doing that. He was a little grumpy about it at first at the time, mm -hmm. but he got over it pretty quickly. Right. Right. And speaking of collaborations, I mean, this is a, a writer who, and there are very few of them where you had a writer with director, with a director who, they were a team in such a way. And it seems that Sondheim has had more than his share of, of that, those, those team ups with, with Hal Prince, with Lapine, with, you know, uh, if, you know and going back to Jerome Robbins and, and uh, even coming on to, to Forum. Um, of course, you know, with, with, with Hal Prince and his miraculous career that he had, you had two enormously strong personalities in a room and it amazes me when I go back and I read so much about Sweeney Todd of their two differing approaches yeah. that were happening sort of at the same time and yet it ended up being this brilliant evening in the theater in the final analysis yeah 
Well, I, you know, I think that he, his, work, his work has been different with different people. I mean, you, you didn't mention John Weidman, but what an interesting set of shows that they've created, you know, starting with Pacific Overtures and then, and then, uh, uh, <laughs> and then that other show, uh, and then uh, Passion. Mm -hmm. No, yes. oh, Assassins. Uh, Assassins, that's right, I'm sorry. Assassins and then, and then Roadshow mm -hmm. and all of its incarnations. I mean, those, those have been very heady pieces that I think that, and, and um, listening to, him, uh, did you did you listen to the the sit down that, that Patrick Cassidy did the other the other evening about yes assassins? with the with the assassins when, when he and Weidman talked about working on that show so they talked for months before they started creating just to really get their heads wrapped around the material and of course they had to narrow down the number of assassins and all that sort of thing mm -hmm. but yeah I, I think but you're you're right about about working with Hal Prince they had so much simpatico. And yet they came from very different angles. I mean, Prince was much more about the, the visual nature of the production, uh, about you know what what's our audience going to respond to. He liked the sort of epic sweep of things, and that's what ended up Sweeney Todd being where Sondheim was drawn to getting into the mind of this man who you know could could go on go on a murderous spree and. Uh, both approaches were legit, as we learned from subsequent productions. That's one of the one of the beauties to me of his shows is that that they can be interpreted in uh, in different ways. And the the breadth of subject matter that he could write about to say that you've this is a man who has written not only about the men and women who have attempted to or succeeded in assassinating presidents, but he also wrote about Jack and the Beanstalk and Cinderella and Little Red Riding Hood. And, and I mean, and opening Japan from, mm -hmm. you know, with, with it from the American invaders. I mean, I, I believe that he did sort of get dragged kicking and screaming in the Pacific Overtures. That was one that, that Hal Prince had become interested in because Weidman had uh, written a script that he thought might be a play that, that Prince would produce. And Prince said, I think this would be a musical. I mean, he did that a couple of times with you know works that Sonda and the company was the same thing that mm -hmm. they seemed at first like unlikely material, but uh, and and it wasn't just Sondheim on Pacific Overtures. I think that uh, Jonathan Tunick and several others felt like, what do we know about Asian music? But Sondheim figured it out and wrote something that has a very Asian feel to it. It's a it's a remarkable talent. Mm -hmm. The the thing about um... Uh, you, you say uh, Pacific Overtures, I think of uh, a number of his shows that he has gone back on. And as you mentioned earlier, he is interested in successive and succeeding productions. Um, I think naturally the one that really sticks out to me is Merrily We Roll Along in yeah. that he really, after it, it didn't work the first time, you know, went back and, and, did work on it. Talk a little bit about what happened there. Why do you think it didn't work the first time? And what has he done that makes it work now? Well, you know, he, he wrote some new musical material for it, took away the frame uh, of the original that had been Franklin Shepard speaking to at a high school graduation and that sort of thing. That was some of it. I mean, some of the problems with that, that original production or of, of how Prince is doing. Um, you know, he cast a lot of inexperienced young actors uh, because he wanted to be able to have their freshness when he got down to that, gone down to that end, the end point, which was really the beginning of the show, since it was in reverse chronological order. They weren't very convincing uh, as, as, you know, older people. And, and that's who you met at first. They seemed like young people you know, play acting. So I think that was that was part of it too. Um, and then the reverse chronology, although I think anymore, we are so much more used to with films and theater where things don't necessarily follow in straightforward chronological order. I don't think that that anymore it really washes as a, a, a reason why it didn't work, but it meant more work for people to try to follow it. I mean, how, you know, how is this happening? 
So when when he and uh, uh, when he worked on that one and Lapine directed uh, and George Firth was involved again, you know, they did some restructuring of it, a little bit of additional music, uh, moved some things around, and I, I think it works better. I mean, there's still a lot of people who feel like, you know, it's still not quite right, but um, I think he's he's satisfied with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as you say, there was a moment, I mean, and understandably so, after that failure with that show in its original production, where he did a bit of soul searching and trying to figure out, you know, where am I, what's going on? Mm -hmm. And in Into His Life comes James Lapine and something like Sunday in the Park with George, which I don't know that you really could have imagined would have been the kind of thing that he and, and Hal Prince ever would have done. Um, he was given the gift of an entirely different approach, um, much in the same way, in a strange way, almost that Richard Rogers was coming from Larry Hart to Oscar Hammerstein. He was given another, you know, entirely different way to look at shows. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think that probably having Lapine involved in that restage production, um, a very different kind of collaborator, that sort of thing had to make a, a big difference too. And it was cast differently also. So they, you know, dealt with people who could swing in both directions age-wise. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I think Lapine is certainly an important factor. Yeah. It's interesting that only as of late in the last few years has Sondheim's stage musicals been filmed a lot more than they probably were. And there's only, you know, a few of them uh, would be uh, um, Sweeney and, and, and um, Little Night Music, uh, Into the Woods and Forum. Am I missing one? Gyps well, then Gypsy and West Side Story, but of the strictly Sondheim. What do you think is, uh, what do you think has been the results of the film adaptations of his musicals? Do you think that there have been good representations or? Well, I think that the the more recent ones, uh, Sweeney Todd and Into the Woods um, were done with sensitivity and thoughtfulness and not trying to just sort of recreate the stage production. And particularly like the Tim Burton, Sweeney Todd, which in many ways sort of recast the story. We don't have the chorus. We don't hear the ballad of Sweeney Todd. You know, they're, they're, and he said, it's because Jim Burton made it into a movie. And, you know, movies work differently than stage plays do. And I thought that uh, probably uh, Into the Woods with Rob Marshall directing it um, had some of that same kind of, uh, of thought to it. So I, but I, to me, those were the earlier ones in many ways, I think are not, uh, I mean, a little night music that Cal Prince directed. Uh, it just, I mean, the casting was certainly a major flaw with that one with Elizabeth Taylor playing playing Desiree. But uh, you know, the uh, in Forum, uh, director got a hold of that one and changed it in many ways and really sort of diddled with the the, the script that Chevalier uh, and Gelbart had spent so much time. They always said it was like writing the Swiss watch. You you couldn't. If you change one piece of the story, everything else had to be realigned again, and uh, that that you know I think that that didn't work nearly so well mm -hmm. with, with that movie. Everybody ought to have a mate. Someone will be busy as a bumblebee, and even if you grumble, be as graceful as a grouse. Wriggling in the empty room, chilling in the living room, giggling in the dining room, wiggling in the other rooms, party all around. Tell me the virgin, how is she, Ellen? Tell me the virgin, I want to know how she. How is the virgin? She's very low, remember the smile? It's now nearly a grin. Having completed a 630 six page encyclopedia on Stephen Sondheim. For as many years as you have been a witness to and, and, and a colleague to some degree of as, as a documentarian and, and getting from the man's mouth, you know, his responses, what do you, wh where have you arrived at your assessment of this artist and this work? Well, I, I think that uh, he, he certainly is the foremost exemplar of 
excellent musical theater uh, coming out of the, you know, the latter third of the 20th century. Uh, and the fact that he's still at it, um, I mean, his, his composition, his music composition, his lyric writing, of course, are, are admirable. And the, the diversity of material that he's worked with is sort of mind-boggling. But ultimately, what, what I come down to is that there is a tremendous humanity behind all of the shows that he has been involved with. I think it's something that he brings to it, but also that he inspires in those with whom he collaborates. And to me, that, uh, that really sets him head and shoulders above uh, other creators of musical theater. And there are many fine people who created musical theater, but Steve has done it consistently for such a long career. Uh, you know, to me, that, that, that is why, why it warrants having the Stephen Sondheim encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, while we, you know, we, as you mentioned, we did get uh, a gift the other day to be able to see him in conversation with his assassins collaborators, you know, going on 91, what can you tell us? Do you know, is he still creating? Do, can we expect more work from him? Can we expect more music? I have a ready answer for that. You know, for a while, he was working on adapting the two films by Luis Buñuel into something with uh, the playwright David Ives, but it is my understanding that that collaboration ended. Ives decided he wanted to write other things, and uh, I don't know that anything more has come of it. He's been very immersed, I understand, in the work on West Side Story. Uh, so I, beyond that, I've not heard of anything else, and I've not really, I've not had conversations with him over the last year or so. Right. And speaking of the last year or so, uh, you know, we've been closed down and not had any uh, opportunities to see Stephen Sondheim Productions live on stage. You know, we're all looking forward, of course, to the company. Hopefully when it gets back open, the West Side Story hopefully will reopen on Broadway. Have you uh, encountered any particular virtual Sondheim offerings you'd like to recommend to uh, viewers of this to be able to check out to get their fix? Yeah, not not a specific productions. The the uh, evening that Raul Esparza did with all the singers that had uh, a cascade of technical issues on the front end and people put up with and were glad they did when it finally happened, I think was a wonderful thing. I don't know whether that is still online or not, but uh, that, that was the thing that I'm, and it was fairly early in the pandemic, and I felt like it was something that I that I really needed to hear just to sort of get me back in the in the groove again on on things. But beyond that, uh, you know, uh, musicals are, require so much collaboration and working together. I mean, even if you try to do something virtually, it's pretty hard to pull that off in the, the ways that the limitations that theater has uh, imposed upon it these days. Right. Right. Well short of being able to see a show, we can read about them starting April 15th of 2021, the Encyclopedia of Stephen Sondheim. Rick, how can we get the book? It is available from Roman and Littlefield, R-O-W-M-A-N.com. You can get it for 30% off if you use code R-L-F-A-N-D-F-30. The book is also going to be available as an ebook. I, I don't have much information about that, but but that is another way, and it is uh, just a little less expensive uh, that way. The book can also certainly be ordered through Amazon, and uh, and it will. I hope it will be at some bookstores too, uh, <laughs> if we can get the bookstores open again. But uh, the best deal uh, looks like it's that one from uh, Roman and Littlefield. Great. Well, for those of us who who work on shows by Stephen Sondheim. I'm sure this is going to be a reference guide that everybody is going to want to get their hands on and uh, just devour in terms of the backstage stories and the details that are in here. It's an, it's an incredible accomplishment, Rick. Congratulations on Thank it. You. We're all looking forward to, to a wider release on it. And thanks so much for being with me today. I really appreciate it. It's been a real it. pleasure to talk with you, Michael. I admire all the things that you've been doing. You know, your, your uh, Sondheim conversations uh, throughout the, the pandemic have uh, have offered me some uh, some respite. Uh, it's been great to have those available and to see some of the people. Well, I appreciate Thank that. You. They've been, they were a lot of fun to have and it's great to continue the conversations with people like you. Thank you.
Thanks, Rick. Have a Thanks. great day. Bye now. Okay.